This episode is brought to you by Weak Excuses Pro. For 20 years, Weak Excuses has been the premier manufacturer of quickie justifications for everyday use. You're late. Well, my stomach hurts. You kissed my boyfriend. It's been a really stressful day. You ran over my dog. My father was a circus clown. Now, with Weak Excuses Pro, you can benefit from that same reliable channel of half-considered evasions for when you screw up at work. When your boss says, the delivery is two weeks late, you can come back with, you see, Bob was talking my ear off all day. As you know, the patented Weak Excuses system is designed to provide the perfect response to get someone temporarily off your back by either frustrating them or rendering them completely confused. Just when you need it, Weak Excuses Pro is there for an inapplicable response. When the HR rep says, that outfit's inappropriate for the office, Weak Excuses has you ready with, are you kidding? Have you heard about the California fires? Or, do you know anything about our most important customer being murdered during your meeting with her? You didn't say anything about the cookies I brought last Monday. And when you order at their website, use the promo code REREAD, one word. And thank you, Weak Excuses, for sponsoring the Rereading Wolf podcast. Warning, the following discussion is deliberately riddled with spoilers and unhinged speculation on this nearly 40-year-old book, Gene Wolfe's The Book of the New Sun. You can't read a Gene Wolfe story. You can only reread a Gene Wolfe story. Welcome to Rereading Wolf. We'll abandon the literary artifice that this is the first time you and we have read these books. We're going to try to understand, and that means considering the books as a whole. Hi, I'm James Wynn. And I'm Craig Brewer. We have comments, Craig. I like comments. Comments are good. Jason Cassidy reached out to us on email. He says, just got done listening to the latest episode. And I had a few thoughts to share with you. So first, regarding the use of showbread with the Eucharist. He knows that many Christian scholars like to draw directly on Jewish traditions as being precursors of later Christian traditions, which makes sense. You know, the first Christians were Jews. If Severian is sort of a Gnostic Christ, then looking over a Eucharist comprised of Judaic ritual items could mean that he himself is a precursor to a truer Messiah, the conciliator. Showbread, he says, along with burning frankincense, was traditionally used in the tabernacle, the traveling temple the Hebrews used while wandering in the desert. He, you know, he doesn't say so, but that's a reasonable allusion to the Pellerines Cathedral. Mm -hmm. They are also pilgrims. Regarding the smell of burnt roses, he goes on, that Severian sensed in his room after the night of the ritual, Jason notes, as another listener did also, dead saints or a saint experiencing stigmata give off a smell of roses, and the smell of burnt roses could go along with Wolf's trend of not-quite-right Catholicism that runs through the book. Both Catherine and Thecla play pivotal parts in Severian's spiritual life, the former as the patron of his order and the latter as his conscience. The smell of roses could connect them on a metaphysical level. And why would Catherine smell like burnt roses? She just got done playing a part in a ritual that involved flowers and explosives. Yeah, I still I still like the connection of the roses with the saints. I'm glad somebody else was talking about that because it's it's a whole aspect I hadn't known. 
and now I do. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I no, I I think that's absolutely true. And obviously for St. Catherine, there is a kind of indirect connection to roses anyway, because yeah. it, it bursts into roses, it, at least for Holy Catherine in, in the original story, it just falls apart. But there's a Catherine's wheel that kind of sparks like flowers yeah. going up. And the showbread point reminded me too, it made me actually think, you know, because whenever you're looking for that kind of symbolic level of meaning, it usually helps when you've got a pattern, right? That's that's right. when it makes it much better. So, but luckily, Severian talks about his simple meals all the time. And there are a lot of times he talks about bread and it made me just want to know, you know, I, I think that's fascinating for that one passage, but it also made me want to go back and be like, okay, well, someone should go and trace out <laughs> everything that Severian eats. And let's see what we can come up with that. I think there was an earth list thread on that. And oh, was Michael there? Andre Drews, he went back and, and got all the references to people eating in the book of the new sun. That's cool. <laughs> I'm sitting here, I'm looking at, I have my series fiction, the synopsis uh, of everything, but then he has all his appendices, which are just like that, all the, the fun lists and mm-hmm. like streams of symbols. Yeah, <laughs> stuff. He should have added meals. And then of course, if it gets popular, then what there needs to be is the new sun cookbook with recipes <laughs> for everything that's out there. <laughs> well, it's going to be a lot of recipes with leeks. Yeah. <laughs> Matcha. No, I remember I bought the Dragonlance back in the days of, I was coming up with Dragonlance, but there was a Dragonlance cookbook that came out that I remember, <laughs> and I actually tried to make some stuff. Oh, wow. And there have been plenty of Tolkien ones, too. Some... Was, it, was, was there a lot of boiled meat and that kind of thing? I can't even remember. I mean, <laughs> I tried to make some dessert thing that I think they ate in the inn. I can't remember anything about it, but I remember I had it. Huh? Well, uh, Patrick Chesney also has a lot of ideas about Holy Catherine Feast Day at the Madachin. He suggested that, quote, it seems like the primary purpose of the play is to convey to new journeymen and remind existing ones that there is nothing wrong with killing when it's sanctioned by the state. In fact, it might be a moral imperative to do so. It's a long and thoughtful but compelling post. I'll put a link to it in the show notes. Yeah. And the thing that I responded there to, which I think is absolutely right, is honestly, yeah, that's what we should take away from the chapter overall, like on our first reading, when you're, you're really trying to just get, get the point. Um, and I feel bad that we didn't even miss mention it because <laughs> we were already, we were so into the, the, the weeds right. and looking for small things, you know, which is one admitted danger of always looking for small, subtle clues that, you know, if you're looking, I think that one, one thing we may not be doing quite as well is just giving a nice sort of traditional thematic reading of what's mm-hmm. going on. So I kind of took that as a little bit of point taken and I need to need to pull back just a little bit sometimes myself. So which is good, too, because that's the whole point is to see the the entire thing, not just the the minutiae that we might have missed. Yeah, absolutely. It can be very hard for me because I'm always I always I I have a (laughs) compiling list going on in my head all the time. (laughs) But no. And on that point, no, I think he's absolutely right that what the the whole overall gist of the chapter is doing is setting up precisely that a kind of state and semi-religious sanctioned kind of, I think I use the term political theology, which is just fancy critical term for other stuff, but, but it really kind of works for that moment where you see how these kids are getting indoctrinated and you know, how it's part of how Severian has no problem with torture. And a lot of his, 
you know, moral growth that happens throughout the, and just maturity that happens throughout the books is partly because of how he was raised. They literally fetishize execution. Oh, yeah. Yeah. And it works for all their talk of, you know, being professional and being very aloof from it. That scene shows that it's not just that. I mean, it is deeply embedded in their personal symbolism, personal way of looking at the world. And right. even if they all know it's just a ritual that they do year after year, it embeds itself. I mean, that's part of the whole thing that goes on in all of these books is how deeply story can affect you. And to, yeah. to play a part in a story like that is a little more than just lying. Well, uh, Patrick also proffered the possibility that every visitor Severian gets in his new dorm room is an equester. He reminds us that Marubius and Triskali are definitely equesters. He notes that they appear in reverse chronological order from when Severian encountered them. The maid, then Thecla, then Triskali, and finally Marubius. He says, quote, this seems like someone going further and further back in Severian's memories until it finds the apparition that best suits its needs. He likes this theory because he thinks it, quote, simplifies Wolf's mysteries. Specifically, it provides an explanation of why and how Thecla or House Azure Thecla would show up in Severian's room. What do you think? I think that is fascinating. And it's the only time I think we would actually get any kind of glimpse of the workings of whatever computer is capable of making equesters. It's a big jump to put on that scene because what it kind of means is that that's the point when, for whatever reason, the computer or ship that Malrubius later says is producing him is deciding on how to communicate with Severian. But I do like the idea that what it's doing is kind of playing through his memories, offering different versions of different people, and then for whatever reason, landing on Malrubius and Triscoll. Well, one thing I, I'll counter, it's not really big, it's actually explainable, but other than Malrubius, the maid is the earliest memory of all. Severian has encountered her unchanged at every feast day for as long as he can remember. Mm. Now, you know, one could say, but in the last year, she was the most recent, then maybe. But, you know, I think this simplification possibly leaves some spare parts unattached. Now, Patrick thinks that Catherine with a C, to play Catherine with a K, would be something, quote, so obvious and attractive to Wolf that he wouldn't be able to avoid it once he thought of it. But then he proposes that maybe Wolf never expected us to solve the maid's identity. He says, quote, while James's unified theory of Severian's parentage was a little too far out for my tastes, I really loved how it gave a rich backstory to an otherwise minor character. As Craig noted in response, this seems to be the kind of thing that Wolf loves to invite. I propose that this may be one of those intentionally unsolvable mysteries, since, as James demonstrates, it gives such great opportunity for the reader to fill in the blanks themselves without compromising the plot, and isn't accepting a mystery as unsolvable the simplest explanation of them all? No, Patrick. <laughs> I can't make peace with Wolf's unsolved mysteries. I'm his Captain Ahab. But then Patrick packs his sabretash and heads down the road with us to proffer that maybe Palamon was Catherine's father. Incidentally, this comes up a lot. What's the difference between an Eidolon 
and an equaster? He asks. Well, an equaster is a physical body generated by a hero machine from a human mind. An Eidolon is used variously to refer to a ghost or an apparition, a mental image of someone, and in one instance in Earth of the New Sun, a reference to an equaster. So there you go. <laughs> and I'm not sure if this is exactly right and how it's used everywhere, but now Rubia says that equasters are these physical things. And Eidolon, just the, if you go back to the Greek word that it's coming from, it's also the same word that comes to idea. And so I know we always talk about an Eidolon is like a phantom or a ghost or an apparition, which means something that primarily you see. But interestingly, it also, I mean, if you go back towards the idea and Plato uses that term, it's more like the essence. Or an image. Just an image of someone. It's an image or an essence. And so those could be opposites, right? An image could be a fake thing and the essence could be pure. But that's a perfect kind of Wolfian fun word to play with because it mm -hmm. can, it, associations can leap in two different directions. This is in, cha in chapter five of Sword of Lictor. At the, he's at the party where he meets Syriaca. They were people in costume, but some as, I guess, ghosts. The, the, well, I guess the service meaning would be that they were dressed up as ghosts or something, but right. could it also be that fun thing of some kind of weird technology to let someone quote unquote dress up by offering a virtual version of themselves? I don't know. Make them appear to be transparent or yeah. something. Who knows? That's a lot to draw from one word, but. <laughs> okay. So let's go discover the Lictor of Thrax. A city we won't actually visit for a long time. <laughs> yeah. Chapter 13, The Lictor of Thrax. Yeah, so we have a turn in Severian's life. <laughs> I know you've been looking forward to this. I have been. I'm looking forward to getting out of Hogwarts. <laughs> so after Thecla's death and Severian's confession... He's locked up in a cell on the top floor of the Oubliette, actually near Thecla's old cell. Ironically, the guild doesn't have any police powers to arrest, so they can't detain Severian without a legal process. So the door is kept unlocked. But there are two journeymen outside his door with swords. Except for the day after Thecla's death, when he had to leave to make a confession to Palamon, he never leaves his cell. Severian says that his time before Palamon served as his trial, and the rest of the time was his sentencing when the masters had to decide what to do with him. Right. And the language here in this first paragraph, this there's a whole lot about the difference between law and justice and how you present yourself and what's morally right and what's legally right mm -hmm. and what's right in terms of how things are seen. And all of that is right there in the first paragraph. Like the, we're getting totally set up for, for that. Cause I mean, I think we were, we were joking just a little bit before we started, but the, how, in a lot of ways, this is just another one of the move the plot forward kind of chapters mm -hmm. um, with certain aspects. But at the same time, there's a lot of stuff here that's setting up certain themes about how the characters in the world here views law, views the difference between law and justice, and how they are worried sometimes less about what's right and more about what's good for the guild or how to present certain things in certain ways. So there's a whole lot of actual kind of interesting parsing of different moral, legal, ethical decisions in this chapter. And I just think it's cool that it all is sort of right there in the very beginning of the the, the chapter that we're, we're talking about 
trials and, um, uh, you know, the worried about legal process and stuff like that. And there's a lot of world building minutia here. Uh, mm -hmm. Not only at the end of this chapter, we're going to hear about basically the layout of the Citadel and Nessus, but also just the relationship of the guild to the rest of the Commonwealth and to the yeah. government. Something that's things that we never saw before. So Severian says that, quote, it is said that it is the peculiar quality of time to conserve fact and that it does so by rendering our past falsehoods true. It's <laughs> a well, weird sentence, right? <laughs> yes, like, but it's also like, it's also very Wolfian because mm -hmm. th that's often exactly the the law of his narrative. But it's exactly. interesting that he presents this as some sort of a uh, cosmological theory. Right. All about how, you know, symbols become truth and mm -hmm. law and lies become truth. Um, what I think is cool is the way he says it is that it said that it's the peculiar quality of time to conserve fact mm -hmm. and that it makes facts stay the same by turning falsehood into truth. Like that's yeah. the part that you think, well, that's not a fact. <laughs> that's actually <laughs> the opposite of a fact. Um, you know, if something, if a lie becomes truth, then that's not retaining a fact. That's actually changing something from what was, you know, that that's, that's the creation of an alternate fact. Well, it's a fact. A fact is, is what we say is also a fact. Right. So that time says, okay, well, we'll ensure that this will not be a falsehood by turning it into a truth. Right. Right. It's just such a fun way to present that mm -hmm. as, you know, yeah. Yeah. That a fact, what is a fact is, is a true thing, but it might not be the same thing over time. Yeah. And then it might take time for the truth of fact to come out. Just, yeah, it's such a great sentence. Weird. I, I haven't been able to find uh, any kind of analogy of this saying. So maybe the theory of the conservation of fact is still in our future. <laughs> but Severian says it was true for him. Yep. He said, quote, I had lied in saying I loved the guild, that I desired nothing but to remain in its embrace. Now I found those lies become truth. The life of a journeyman, even that of an apprentice, seemed infinitely attractive, not only because I was certain I was to die, but truly attractive in themselves because I had lost them. And just to remind you, if you, if you're forgetting where he said that before, when, uh, before he became a journeyman, there's the scene where the masters come ask him and they're like, do you want this? Do you want to become this? That was two days ago. Right. <laughs> or, says, or actually when he's saying that, I mean, it was two days between the time that he did that and the time he betrayed the guild. Betrayed the guild. Yeah, well, now it's been guild, about yeah. a, a week and uh, almost about 10 days, 11 days yep. since. But there he talked about saying, I said yes, because I really didn't know what else to say and how he was kind of, you know, manipulated by the masters into mm -hmm. saying this, but really what else could he do? That's the only life that he had right now. He's saying, because of all these other things, he desperately wants that to be true, but for totally different reasons <laughs> than he ever could have anticipated. Um, and being in this cell gives him the perspective of a client and mm -hmm. might give us insight into say the way Thecla initially saw Severian. He sees the journeyman as powerful the yeah. active principles of an inimical and nearly perfect machine. He figures this is the end for him. So he leans on something he was taught by Master Malrubius, now dead. It can be hard to remember that as much as he shows up. Master Malrubius told him, 
remember, he's telling this to a child. Hope is a psychological mechanism unaffected by external realities. Severian says, quote, I was young and adequately fed. I was permitted to sleep, and therefore I hoped. Again and again, waking and sleeping, I dreamed that just as I was to die, Photolus would come, not alone as I had seen him fight in the Acropolis, but at the head of an army that would sweep the decay of centuries away and make us once more the masters of the stars. Often I thought to hear the tread of that army ringing in the corridors. Sometimes I carried my candle to the little slot in the door because I thought I had seen the face of Vodalus outside in the dark. So before we talk about the hope part of this, I <laughs> want to point out that this is probably, as far as I can recall, the first time that we actually get a sense of what it is Vodalus stands for. Oh, well, yeah, yeah. He wants to take everyone to the stars. Right? Exactly. And we've never known that. Like, we certainly didn't know what Vodalus really stood for in the first chapter. We know he's some kind of rebel. We know he's going against the established way of things, and he's got some mystique about him. But we never know. In fact, I think you and I even mentioned something like, is he supposed to be some kind of populist, <laughs> you mm -hmm. know, or something like that? That's what you would seem to think if you're going against some sort of autark, tyrannical sounding figure. Turns out here, actually, that he's trying to do, you know, maybe something a little different, but um, to go away from the decay, which is, seems like a good thing. We've learned a lot about this world and about how decayed it is in many but ways. But he's not going to take everybody with him to the stars. Uh, right. Yeah. That's, that's the thing that you're eventually going to try and figure out. So it's the kind of thing that like, it sounds really good. You know, we'll go back to the stars. We'll, we'll, we'll be a greater race again, but it's not, it's again, it's not going to be for humanity it's going to be for a few different people who right as we eventually find out kind of run away from the problem <laughs> yeah. at least that seems to be the way that wolf sets sets this well, up. Or they'll be masters of the stars i mean nah. um, uh, sure. uh typhon yeah. says that he was the master of many uh stars but right. he made his base on earth and right. discovered oh that was a mistake because suddenly right. the <laughs> Sun yep. winked out. They didn't have the the power and supplies, the energy necessary to get off of the earth. So. But just wanted to point out that this is the first time after, you know, however many chapters, 13, 12 chapters, 80 some odd pages in this version, where we finally get a glimpse of something that Vodalus stands for. Yeah. <laughs> which I've always found interesting because it really means that we don't kind of know the motivations that Severian would have had. I mean, we never really do know the motivation that Severian had. Severian is for following Vodalus. He even says it's mysterious to him a little bit about why he was so fascinated with that. It was just general romance. Right. It. Romance. He's a powerful dude. He's standing there. He's got, you know, a pretty woman by He's his side. He's protecting Thea. Weapons. Yeah. 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 So all that kind of thing. But, as far as what that actually stands for, um, yeah, we, we've never known. And it's still, when he mentions this, I still wonder if that's Severian, journeyman Severian, or if that's Severian mm. now writing it, who would put that aside in there? Or yeah. was was that just sort of part of the grandeur of, of the image that he had, like part of his escape theory, escape fantasy? Mm -hmm. But anyway, yeah, just wanted to point that out. That, yeah. But the rest of it, though, is the hope. Um, yeah. And how hope is something that a child, <laughs> a <laughs> child would maybe have, um, but also something that, you know, Malrubius is telling a child in order to help him grow up a little bit. And, I, or to help him learn how to handle clients. 
Also. Yeah. And it's very harsh. Yeah. So, but I love that. I love that last part there. Like I was permitted to sleep and therefore I hoped, you know, yeah. I mean, yeah, I was well fed, you know, I was, my, my circumstances weren't too awful yet. And so I still had hope. So when Thecla spoke of friends coming for her, did she suppose Vodalus or his followers would be among them? It's not clear. There's, there's reason to doubt it as well as believe it. Yeah. Since we had talked about, you know, the reason that she wanted the book of heraldry or of the, um, the book of the lineages of the exultant families was maybe to try and figure out, you know, who she might have some relationship to right. or some, you know, some sort of feudal kind of thing that would, would, you know, put them in her debt or something. Um, that could have been, um, she never really says anything that talks about Vodalus, like, you know, breaking her out. Um, but, and so I, yeah, it, the connection between Thecla and Vodalus is vague enough in the way it's all mm -hmm. put together that I don't think he would ever come straight out and sort of have Thecla imagine right. that Vodalus would save her. Yeah. Severian says that what made all this worse is that he was well-trained in all the things torturers could do to him in intimate detail. And that was torture in itself. Mm -hmm. he, he imagines the tortures quote, sometimes one by one, as we'd been taught them, sometimes all together in a revelation of pain. Then at last, 11 days after Thecla's death, 13 days since the Feast of Holy Catherine, he's led from his cell to Palamon's office. It's almost spring. I'm not sure of the layout. He leaves the oubliette and he walks, I think, through the old yard because he sees the curtain wall. I'd always assume the corpse door was in the tower, but I see here it's in the wall itself. Oh, wow. mm -hmm. It's it's where they take the corpses to be buried in the Acropolis. So, but that's, I mean, so that unsmeltable wall had a door in it, but the broken part of the wall is separate. There's the tower door and looking down, see the corpse door. Yeah. And unless the only thing I can think of is corpse door, a weird way to talk about a broken wall. I don't think so. No, the broken part, he talks the... about the broken part of the wall separately. And I know that the broken part of the wall is between the bear tower and the red tower, red tower, red keep, whatever. Yeah. I'm not really sure that. Yeah. But anyway, but you know, he went there, he went to the broken part of the wall to be alone. And brother Porter, as he's called, is always hanging out in the corpse door or maybe the Barbican is the corpse. No, no, because it's in the, it's in the wall. We can either try and figure it out, or we could say that Severian got something wrong, or we could say that Wolf got something wrong. <laughs> <laughs> those, those are our options right here. <laughs> <laughs> well, I don't know. I mean, maybe the, maybe the wall has a door, you know, there's nothing to say that the wall, the wall would have had to have some kind of door at some time. Yeah. Gates, I guess that's it. Maybe he just hasn't really described the. Yeah. Yeah. Normally the exits from the Citadel wall are called gates. So I don't yeah. think that it's the Barbican. He enters Palamon's study and he sits in a wooden chair. Palamon's mask is off and he suddenly seems older. I assume that the last two weeks have been pretty hard on him as well. Palamon and Gerlois have discussed his case with the journeyman and the apprentices. The majority agree that he should be executed, but many people spoke in his defense, and some journeymen came to the masters privately to urge that he be executed without pain. 
Severian asks how many. Uh, Spalman says that more than three, but the number doesn't matter. He says, uh, don't you believe you deserve to die painfully? Severian asks to die by the revolutionary because he hopes that he won't get whatever he asks for. And just one little thing. I couldn't tell if it was a joke when he says how many, and he says more than two and more than three, as if to say, but not more than four. <laughs> it wasn't, I don't know. <laughs> Pelaman says that, yes, it would be fitting for him to die by the revolutionary, but he pauses for quite a while and it's driving Severian nuts. He mentions a brass-backed fly that are apparently early signs of spring when flies in the window. And he says he felt that I was already dead, but still must die. At last, Palamon says, We cannot kill you. I have had the most difficult time convincing Gerlois of that, yet it is so. Now, he gives his reasons. The first one is of principle. If we slay you without judicial order, we are no better than you. You have been false to us, but we will have been false to the law. The second reason is practical, and I think quite unconvincing. Quote, we would be putting the guild in jeopardy forever. An inquisitor would call it murder. Now, this is the first we've heard of the job known as the Inquisitor, and I guess he's responsible for policing the police. He's the eternal of internal affairs officer that regularly shows up in American police shows. But do Inquisitors really show up? Who is going to report this? Severian has no connections outside the Gill. I, of course, have a theory which you can hear in episode 111, The Feast of Holy Catherine. I think there are more eyes on Severian than Severian realizes. And Palamon and Gerlois are aware of it. But I can well imagine that a guy like Gerlois, who has, whether he admits it or not, sacrificed so much for the guild as a cult of honor, would be torn regarding whether it would be worth it to see it dismantled out of an act of principle. Mm -hmm. Hard to believe, but Gerlois is the man of principle in all this. But he did eventually relent. Yeah. The only other thing I thought that maybe there could be an Inquisitor is we have seen the various um, mentions of different sort of religious offices. And then there was the the one prayer reader who came mm -hmm. with Thecla who was turned away. So we have seen certain other officials come around. Um, but I mean, I, I think it's more interesting to think about <laughs> yeah, the relationship between the masters and sure. sort of what were the, what were the back discussions going on? There? Well, Palamon admits that ex executing Severian would be just, but the guild has no right to take life on its own authority. It's a paradox. If the guild presented Severian's case to the authorities, they would certainly issue an order of execution, but at the cost of the reputation of the guild, mm -hmm. the veneer that the torturers are emotionless automatons who act without any personal agency or interest would be shattered. Yep. It would be made obvious that they are capable of misgivings about the sentences they carry out and would be viewed as another faction in the Commonwealth perhaps a dangerous one if it were wielded appropriately. 
regulation from above might become much more severe. Perhaps outside guards would be brought in to ensure that the clients were protected. I use that term ironically from the guild. Now, and okay. yeah, no. Well, the other thing I was going to say about all these different reasons that he gives, and that I like a lot, is that what it does is it also pits morality or true justice, you mm-hmm. know, what what you actually deserve, against the law, because the they can't just do the right thing; that has to go through the right legal channels. But then both of those things are pitted against perception. Mm-hmm. Um, and against, so you have both or politics or politics. Yeah. Morality. Yeah. The easier term for it. Yeah. Better, better term. Yeah. So you have morality, law and politics all working against each other in this situation, which just to really kind of pull all the way back, I think is a really cool moment where we find out how old and decayed the Commonwealth is because, or maybe that's more contemporary too, <laughs> the, the, you know, the law and morality and, and politics are all at odds with each other. Um, but it's it's supposed to be set up like a sort of impossible situation for right. these guys. And I just like that moment because it is pointing out, you know, it's not petty. Their, their worry about their reputation is not a, a petty concern. It's not a tiny concern. It's, you know, their way of life. It's it's something that it would it protects all the, the kids who are in this place too, you mm-hmm. know. So it's it's not just selfishness to do that. But, but I just like that setup of how he's, he's able to get all three of those forces at <laughs> odds with each other in that moment, which when you're thinking here about how the torturers fit into the world, if they're, you know, not only then are they serving this awful function of tortures, but they're also in a situation in which they are clearly aware that they can't serve their role perfectly in this situation. Right. There are some exceptions here that need to be put out. I just like that. Severian says something next. And I think that's, I had, I think I've always imagined based on what he says after this next sentence about taking his own life, that he is imagining throwing himself in the river, but this is what he actually says, quote, the vision I had in guile when I had so nearly drowned rose before me and it possessed as it had then a sullen, yet strong attraction. He doesn't say drowning possessed a strong attraction, but the vision that he had, Mm -hmm. which was of him sitting in the examination room. What is he talking about here? (laughs) I think of it this way. When you're a young kid in this situation, the examination room is basically where the truth of you comes out, right? It's where you undergo the worst things. It's when you're put under the most stress. It's where, as a worker, you have to actually finally do the thing that you've been trained to do. And then also as a prisoner, it's the one place where you actually undergo the whole scary thing that's going on. It's kind of like, you know, the moment of, of where things get really real. And it's terrifying, um, but it's also probably the kind of thing where I think of it kind of like, Maybe what he's saying is I want to just get to the point where I can stop worrying about things and actually face mm. what's going on. Um, and there might be a way to read that back in that when he has that little image in the first part, um, when he when he has that sort of hallucination about being in the examination room and having Malrubius show up and, and hearing the noise and the, of the bell and the, the tapping that 
you know, that's sort of like a moment of judgment, of final judgment. And um, that would make, to me, that makes sense as a kid who's grown up in this place for the examination room to be like the, the, the place of judgment, just kind of like you, if you have stress dreams, they usually happen, you know, at the one place where you you're put on the spot and you have to, you have to work, you have to do something right at that point. Maybe the examination room is that kind of thing for someone raised in the tortures guild. Yeah. Well, maybe, maybe, maybe he's saying drowning could be my excruciation. Yeah. It certainly has been. He talked about yeah. how terrified he was, right? Yeah. So, and, so when he says this, Severian does offer to commit suicide. Mm-hmm. Uh, he says, uh, "I would rather take my own life. I will feign to swim and die in mid-channel, far from help." The shadow of a sour smile crossed Master Palamon's ruined face, ruined by age or some other event. I don't know. Palamon says, I'm glad you made that offer only to me. Master Gurluise would have taken far too much pleasure in pointing out that at least a month must pass before swimming can be made credible. He's saying Gurluise would claim that Severian was only trying to extend his own life a little right. bit, I guess. Right. But Or maybe that the death he proposed was too gentle. Could be. I kind of got the sense, though, that that was more of a jab at Gerlois being way too cynical mm-hmm. um, because Palamon's sort of presenting himself here as, you know, I found a, a nice negotiated solution that will, will fix everyone. And, and Gerlois is mm-hmm. the, you know, the, the hardened, but also very cynical person mm-hmm. behind. So I, that's kind of how I took that, but yeah. you sound like well, Severian know. says I'm sincere. I saw it a painless death, but it was death. I saw it and not an extension of life. So I don't, Mm-hmm. Palamon waves it off, though. He he claims to be worried about an Inquisitor, that one would connect his accidental drowning to... that one would connect his accidental drowning to the unreported circumstances of Thecla's death. I mean, maybe they do have right. to generate that... reports every time a member of the guild dies. It's not impossible. But that the concerns he's offering are pretty weak it's just that in fiction we're used to lame plot contrivances rationales to get characters to make decisions that the author wants them to make it makes me think of how often there's so many times in wolf novels that he'll offer have a character offer a contrived reason like that and then later you'll accept it because you know it's a story but later, Wolf will have the, someone dismantle that reason. Mm-hmm. And it makes me think that Wolf is very much aware of things like that and didn't like putting them in his character's mouths. Yeah. And this one does seem that that worry seems contrived. Whereas mm-hmm. that's where I start to think, yeah, that's, you know, Palamon wants to do something else. Yeah. He, he yeah. Something else in mind. yeah. Well, anyway, they've come up with another plan that Palamon considers less incriminating. He says, do you know anything of the condition of our mystery in the provincial towns? It's almost non-existent outside the Citadel. The, that's the, the Citadel is the only place with a good, with a guild chapter. Some places have a carnifex, a guy who executes and performs, quote, excruciations as the judicators there decree. There's that 
ambivalence about the term excruciations again, whether it always ends in death. Palamon explains that the carnifex is usually hated and feared, so it won't be a position of honor. Still, Severian thinks it's too nice a punishment. He says, I despised myself at that moment far more than I did the guild. But he still does despise the guild. Mm -hmm. For whatever reason, Severian says that he recalls those words of his often and, quote, they have been a comfort to me in many troubles. <laughs> so I don't know what, I don't know why that would comfort him that he said he despised himself at that moment far more than the guild. That one I think is sort of because he's always conflicted about his feelings with the guild, even when he's decided that it needs to be reformed and he's decided to stop practicing torture or anything like that. He's still, it's his family, you know, mm -hmm. and I think that maybe the reason why he feels good about despising himself more than the guild is that he felt like at least he hated the things about himself that he was responsible for more than a sort of more abstract sort of mm. disappointment in the guild because he still also loved the people there um, and they were still his family. Well, Palamond explains his punishment. Quote, there's a town called Thrax the city of windowless rooms. Which, by the way, is one of my favorite <laughs> ex, like extra added titles. Well, good, because I want to talk about that. Any story or any <laughs> town in any fantasy sci-fi genre. Book. I just <laughs> love that, that the city of windowless rooms. Well, I think Severian already lives in a city of windowless rooms. But yeah. <laughs> he goes on. His The Archon there, his name is Abdesius, has written the house absolute. A marshal there has transmitted the letter to the Castellar. The Castellar, of course, you remember, is the whoever's in charge of the citadel, I assume. And from him, I have it. They are in sore need in Thrax of the functionary I have described. In the past, they have pardoned condemned men on the condition that they accept the post. Now the countryside is rotten with treachery. And since the position entails a certain degree of trust, they are reluctant to do so again. So, the Archon Abdesius wants an official carnifex that is not just someone who had to choose between the job and execution. There's so much corruption in the area that they want a professional from the outside who can be relied on. Just a bit of foreshadowing here. Uh, it's not going to work as planned with Sigeria with Severian on the job either. No. And also this is not quite accurate to the job he's getting. Right. I mean, when he gets to Thrax, eventually he's in charge of a whole prison system. Right. I mean, right. he's got levels of, of prisons and all kinds of things to do. And it's a really big administrative job. And they even say that when he's there, he's basically like, part of it, the way I kind of took it is like part of Abdesius's cabinet, right? I mean, mm -hmm. like he's, he's sort of taken in a position of high honor when they, when he describes it here, it's presented as, especially when they have that thing, like, Oh, sometimes they can take a condemned dude and say, okay, if you start chopping people's heads off, we'll let you live. Right. That's not at all the situation. Like, like they would never take <laughs> like <laughs> someone in the position that he's put in to do that. So, and then we also find out that, of course, once we once he gets there, that 
few weeks or months after he's there, he's given a really touchy kind of role where he's got to go take out the wife of a political rival. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, I think that, um, but, but that leaves me with a question. One, when Wolf's writing this, of course he had revised and had drafts of everything, but did he change the idea of what the job was going to be like when he got to Thrax? Cause it's way more, like I said, administrative, it seems like than just being the guy who holds the ax, which is kind of what it sounds like. here. Well, he's invited to a party because they, he wants the execution of this woman to be public. Right. But he, that doesn't mean he would normally be invited to those things. He right. might still be a pariah. Oh, well, yeah. But the only reason I think it's different is because they're always talking about how he's got to have, you know, guards who walk with him. And they talk about how someone in your position shouldn't be walking around Thrax all on their own. Um, well, yeah. But if everyone hates him, <laughs> then maybe that's true. Oh, yeah. Yeah. It just seems like the, that there's a little bit more, even though he's not, you, you know... Yeah, he's still the the yeah. sort of bad guy, but it's still a position of like big trust. Like they wouldn't just put some random Joe in, you know, in charge of the administration of the the entire. Well, you know, they might have system. though. They might have done that, and Maybe. it didn't. Or they or the last person who did it might not have been a condemned man, but it's still a position of trust. And he might have it might he might have ended up badly. He may have turned out he was incredibly corrupt. He was uh, he was you know doing like. Uh, Governor Ma Ferguson of Texas, she uh, was basically selling pardons, or actually it was her husband before her, but that's Texas <laughs> politics. Um, yeah, but no, it just made me think, and I don't think Wolf changed his mind or got anything mixed up. I think instead it's more that, to me, it just seems like the difference between what's described here and what the job is actually like is more a reflection that maybe Abdesius had some plan in mind the whole time that mm. he wanted, you know, someone i don't know i don't know but it, it just i was thinking about that as i was reading it about how little this matches up with the actual job <laughs> well he comes in there it feels he feels like he's being treated with much more respect but remember abdesius thinks this is you know one of their most highly trained men from the guild so mm-hmm. he treats him appropriately we don't know yeah. what the last guy was treated like we don't know right. like what the condemned men who had this job thrust on them were treated like they may have been treated like prisoners who had to do a a distasteful job. Well, anyway, yeah, that's, that's (laughs) two books down the line. The guild's history says that they've sent journeymen to work in other towns, but uh, whether those were in such cases as this, the Chronicles do not say. And this opens the possibility that the reasons weren't detailed because it was done as a form of punishment. Yeah. By designs, the Chronicles won't say why Severian is being sent either. What would they have done without this request? I, uh, maybe if Severian hadn't been in trouble in this sort of way, perhaps they'd have ignored it. There's not a lot of journeymen, so they can't really give them up normally. But, you know, they're going to take advantage of this request and send Severian to Thrax. He'll send a letter with Severian introducing him as, quote, a highly skilled, as one highly skilled in our mystery for such a place that will not be a falsehood. <laughs> that is to say, Severian was only made a journeyman less than two weeks ago, but he'll still be a lot better than anything they're used to. As uh, Severian reflects on his sentence, he considers a brand new shame. Quote, that I was glad to go, that my feet already longed 
for the feel of grass, my eyes for the strange sights, my lungs for the new clear air of far unmanned places. And now we get some interesting hints. Severian asks where Thrax is, and Palamon says that it is south along the Gaiole near the sea. And then he stops and corrects himself that no, it's north, up the Gaiole, far to the north. And we'll get into this more in a bit. But in Citadel of the Autark, we learn that Palamon was temporarily exiled for some infraction around 30 years previous. Mm-hmm. We never learned what it was. He was a journeyman at the time. So the idea is that Palamon himself was one of those two journeymen dispatched to other towns that are in the Chronicles. And, and that brings up other questions. How did Palamon lose his sight? Were his eyes put out? Remember that the original novella that was the nut of this novel was about a torturer who shows mercy to a client, is exiled, and eventually becomes a master of the guild. Perhaps Palamon is that thread being carried forward. Ah, I like that. Palamon shows him the location on a map, quote, bending over until the lens by which he saw such things nearly touched the parchment. It's on the river where the lower, the, the first cataracts are located. We've talked about potential contemporary world locations, assuming that Nessus is Buenos Aires, moved up along the Uruguay River by some 300 miles, and that, you know, Saltus is Saltus Station. I've often proposed that Thrax, the city of windowless rooms, is somewhere near the Iguazu Falls National Park. Uh, measured by yearly volume of water, the Iguazu Falls is the largest waterfall in the world. But this requires taking some liberties. You have to assume that the Uruguay River at this time is commonly perceived not to have made a sudden eastern turn into Brazil, but instead been seen to follow up the papiri Guazu River that runs along the Argentine-Brazilian border. It's possible. But this still doesn't identify a contemporary counterpart to Thrax, nor why it's called the City of Windowless Rooms, or whether and how that relates to the name Thrax. The first significant room Severian enters is Abysius's, and that has a very significant window. Palamon says that if he had funds, he could take a boat to Thrax. But as it is, he'll have to go by foot and create enemies, resurrect his grandmother, devour Thecla and incorporate her into his mind and meet the Autotarch and meet a separate version of himself. (laughs) Severin remembers the chrysos that Vodalus gave him, and he figures he could use that for his trip. But of course, he'd only discover sooner how useless it would be. But he knows that he won't try anyway. Quote, I knew that I could could not take advantage of whatever wealth it might represent. It was the guild's will to cast me out with no more money than a young journeyman might be expected to possess. And for prudence sake, as well as honor, I must go. What does he mean by prudence sake? Yeah, I wasn't really sure. Here, I think he means prudence in the sense of, I don't want to give myself away that if I, if I have, if I show the coin, people will ask me where I got it and then I'll, out myself as a Votolari mm. or something. Yeah, maybe so. I think that's what he means by that. And then the honors is more about right. meeting. Well, that, yeah, that's yeah. clear. He's going to take his punishment. Uh, he says something else interesting. Quote, I knew it was unfair. 
If I had not glimpsed the woman with the heart-shaped face and earned that small gold coin, it is more than possible I would never have carried the knife to Thecla and forfeited my place in the guild. In a sense, that coin had bought my life. Now, in what way did the event with Vodalus induce him to save Theclus? It's not obvious to me. I have a not couple obvious. theories, naturally. Yeah. And I think the the to me the thing that makes most sense is that it helped him start to think of himself as acting differently from the guild. So that you're it, saying maybe his act of rebellion against the government that night prepared him to perform this other act of made him start to later. think that I can. It's certainly possible for me to act in different ways, and you know it. It's sort of like it was the first. It was the gateway. It mm-hmm. was the uh, the gateway act to other acts of rebellion or of following his own intuitions. I, we could call it rebellion, but you could also say of following his own conscience, yeah. whether no matter how well he understands his conscience or how clear or pure it is, it's still him doing what he thinks he ought to do instead of what some authority tells him. No, I don't know. Maybe, but you know, he says, says that he saw no contradiction between following Vodalus. And being a torture right. for the guild. That's what he had said. Yeah. <laughs> well, another possibility for me is that it has something to do with Severian's weird relationship to Thea that I've mentioned before. Uh, over and over, it is noted by others that it is really not Thecla Severian is physically attracted to, but to Thea. Yeah. In the house Azure, the false Thecla notes this. Uh, perhaps, perhaps this brings us back to the meaning of symbols that's explored in this novel. Perhaps Thecla is for Severian a symbol of Thea, who is the Thea. symbol of his higher motivations that led him to become a follower of Vodalus. Vodalus, a false earthen vessel for his pure motivations for liberty of the common people under the rusted bonds of nobility and autarky. Yeah, I buy that a lot because it it also helps explain like why young little Severian was so infatuated with Thecla. I mean, mm. it's it's a bit more of a bit more of a psychoanalytic approach. You know, like what you're really desiring in her. Is- it was immediate because as soon as he claps eyes on her, he is taken by her. Mm-hmm. He's smitten. Yep. And that makes sense. I mean, I feel like that makes a lot of sense. So it's not just that he had some pure love for Thecla, but mm. that what they represent. And honestly, that's kind of how Severian deals with women a lot of ways in here is that they, they represent something else. They're certainly yeah. individual people, but then he'll also talk about how women different women at different stages in in his life represented certain things to him. Yeah. So he's definitely every, every woman that he encounters is somehow (laughs) overdetermined in his (laughs) his world and in his psyche, you know, what, what he's thinking about there. So, and that kind of gets back a little bit to some of the things that Joan Gordon had said about how, I mean, she had mentioned something about how Wolf, you know, seemed to idealize women, but he always thought of like, he would talk about the women in his life in, you know, often somewhat, it sounded the way she was describing somewhat slightly hyperbolic terms, but not, I mean, I don't mean that insultingly at all, but just that, that, you know, that really his relationships, particularly with women were often idealized in certain ways, I think. So 
Um, so that certainly fits for Severian. Yeah, well, Severian, uh, yeah, and he he often seeks to define and rank women in idealized yeah. terms. These, yeah. They represent this. Or I desired her because she represented. She did was this, and I right. desired her right. because she did represented that. And it's true. One thing Mark Armini has talked a lot about is about how, especially in the the solar books and the sun books, that women often take more allegorical roles um, and that they're, that's, that's kind of what I mean by overdetermined is mm-hmm. that there, there's just, there's, there's a whole lot of weight, <laughs> that, you know, <laughs> a whole lot of resonance, whether symbolic or metaphorical or psychological or whatever, that especially in, in uh, new and long sun. Yeah. yeah well, it's a very, it, it's, it's never just, we get along really well. <laughs> so. Right. <laughs> right. So anyway, Severian is so lost in reverie about his coin and Thea that he has been paying no attention to Palamon while he gives him advice about the journey. And this to me is the mystery of the chapter. (laughs) (laughs) What other, I'm assuming that, that when he's about to tell him about the roads, he's not repeating the advice. I always think he was telling him something else because then he says like, um, Oh yeah, now you must do without it. Uh, I was telling you, giving you <laughs> such good advice for your journey, but now you must do without it. So I always want to know what advice did he give him? Is this the advice that would have helped him? Not would he have said something like, "Okay, if you go to Nessus and you pass by a costume shop, don't go inside and get lusty after the young girl standing." <laughs> yeah, that would have been really good to know. That would have yeah. been very pointed. Yeah, but <laughs> but no. So that's honestly that's I when I was looking for Curiosity's Earthus for this one, one thing I was looking for was has anyone had any ideas about what advice that he had given him <laughs> that he left out here? Nobody said anything. So. um but that was to me that I wonder, that's one of those points where I'm like, was there something that gets suggested later on yeah. or did yep. Wolf have something in mind? Yeah. If he had said something like, well, you know, know watch out for is. twins in old resale shops. <laughs> oh, I hate it when that happens. Yep. Well, um, Palamon says is up, is frustrated because he says, you know, you were never inattentive in class, but then he, you know, he relents and he says, well, doubtless you would have forgotten everything anyway. So I, <laughs> <laughs> I don't know. Does Palamon perceive him to be forgetful? <laughs> he's he's going to later say that Severian was the finest scholar he taught since mm-hmm. Gerloise. So, and there's a one of the points where Severian's talking about it. He mentions that you know his memory is what made him one of his his favorites. We also know that his memory is what makes him absent minded, right? Mm-hmm. And that's exactly what's happened here yeah. is that he's he's thinking about the coin and it's it's distracted him, and that happens all the time, right? Uh, to Severian. So, uh, Palamon tells him that a previous Autark, uh, Autark Maruthus, closed the roads when Palamon was around Severian's age, maybe what, 50 years ago? I would guess something like that, yeah. Uh, quote Travel encouraged sedition, and he wished goods to enter and leave the city by the river, where they might be easily taxed. The law has remained in force since. And there is a redoubt, so I've heard, every 50 leagues. Still, the road remain, though they are in poor repair. It is said some use them by night. I mean to warn you against them. They are patrolled by Ulans under orders to kill anyone found upon them. Since they have permission to loot the bodies of those they slay, they are not much inclined to ask for excuses. An Ulan is a Polish-like cavalry. Uh, they carry lances and swords. 
to himself, Severian wonders how Palamon came to know so much of travel. And we're going to find out, of course, eventually. There's an earnest attempt at creating a timeline for Palamon and the Earthless. And I, I'll link to it in the show notes. A redoubt, by the way, is, you know, it's a roadblock, a fortification on the road to block the way coming down it. It's open at the flanks. It's a roadblock. One bit of world building I think this does is in addition to the fact that we have a country here that yeah, has yeah. a torturer's guild, we've also got one that where people are not encouraged to move around at all. So that's the second thing I think that really makes this feel oppressive. It's enforced stasis. And I think that's a perfect way to put it, actually, because it's not just sort of keeping power over things, but it's just making sure that nothing changes. Right. He says, <laughs> you know, travel encouraged sedition, but it's not just sedition. There's just, they don't want anything to happen. <laughs> you know, it's, yeah, it's um, not clear it what seems it is almost less about security <laughs> and more about just, I don't know, just, yeah, stasis. Uh, it's noon now and it's winter, so the days are short. Palamon says he can stay at the tower and leave in the morning. But that would mean sleeping in his cell. So Varian says he'd like an hour or so to prepare and then just go. So Palamon agrees, but he asks him to come back to his office before he leaves. He also warns him to be careful for the next hour because while, quote, there are many in the guild who are your friends, who wish this had never happened, but there are others who feel you have betrayed our trust and deserve agony and death. Severian says the second group is correct. That's such a harsh little, little punishment. Um, Just to go back real quickly, the point about the roads, we can't let that go by without saying what you and I have talked about. I don't know. Have we recorded it before? But talking about how, or we did, we talked about this with Michael, I think, right? About how the big mystery at the end of shadow that seems to be totally confusing to so many people might have just been very casually explained right here. Yeah. That it's possible that the, uh, it's possible that the chaos at the gate, right at the end of shadow that never really seems to get explained. Right. And is only barely mentioned right at the beginning of claw could be that Palamon just explained it right here. And he just said, yeah. Yeah. I think, in fact, I think Wolf does explain it, uh, uh, you know, off, off text as the author saying, well, you know, the Ulans were attacking as, they, as people were coming out of the gate. And, okay, thank you. Right. But <laughs> And that's one place where I got to admit, I don't like that because it feels like there's got to be something more mysterious. Like, that's sort of a cool way to end a book on a little bit of a cliffhanger. And you could kind of explain it better, but it's it's just not satisfying. <laughs> it's, it's, you know. He, well, he could have just said the Ulans were attacking. Exactly. So that's one where I'm my conspiracy minded part kicks in, and I'm I'm convinced we got to have a look. There's got to be something else going. And, on. and to be honest, his his explanations and in interviews can be less than helpful, mm-hmm. um, and, and can can lead you can lead you in wrong paths as well. Right. But um, I, you know that I feel like that is about as good an explanation. It is in the text. Mm-hmm. But and I would think it ought to be better, but it um, it's also just such a letdown after Jonas is sitting there talking about how, yeah, each one of those monster creatures yeah. you know, might be looking for one particular person, you know, and right. there's this all this mystery about the wall and then craziness breaks out. And if it's just like, oh, yeah, well, like I told you before, they just yeah. didn't want people traveling. 
Yeah, you want you shouldn't someone have a black bean or something in their pockets or yeah. well, well we can get to that when we get there but i also always wanted to like well why does everybody still try to leave then if they know that <laughs> yeah. well it's like the it's like the wildebeest crossing the river when they know that the crocodiles are there they <laughs> will all cross together we might lose one <laughs> but so but we can get back to severian and his moment here he decides he doesn't even want to spend the night he's just like if i gotta yeah. get out i'm gonna get out i'm gonna go yeah and you know rip the band-aid off as it were. So he gets a watch. He gets an hour or yeah. so. Uh-huh. Hour. Did we, did we decide what a watch was? Did we I think we, it's a very, uh, Wolf said it was an hour and a half. Right. But uh, I, they must have very short watches. That's right. all. <laughs> but, but yeah, so that's what he's going to do is go gather his things. And I guess that's, that's, um, you know, did you have any feelings about why he decides to leave so quickly? I mean, because it's, it's still day, right? He can still... Well, he knows that he'll have to spend the night in the cell and he doesn't feel like he's going to get a lot of sleep there. Uh, also, if... It, I don't know if he's thinking this far in the future. Um, he wants to get out of there. He does, He's not happy with the guild. He always hated the guild. And he would like to just be someplace else. Yeah. If he's going to be in his cell, he might as well be someplace else if he was worried about his life and it's not clear that he is worried about not being about being murdered in the tower, he should worry that if the journeymen know that he's going to leave the next day without being killed, someone might decide to do the job. Could be that. Could be that. The only reason I ask is because there is that line there where, uh, Palamon says you can sleep here tonight, depart in the morning. Um, and Severian says, sleep in my cell, you mean? And then Palamon nodded. Though I knew he could scarcely see my face, I felt that something in him was studying me. So there's some, he feels like Palamon is testing him yeah. about something there. And I just was never quite sure what that was. Was it like that? Was like, was he thinking, was he asking or, or was he questioning me to see if I thought that someone in the guild would actually try to kill me or take revenge on me? And so I needed to get out. I don't know. I just... I, I wasn't sure what he's suggesting Palamon is studying him for. Well, maybe this is like another opportunity from Palamon. Like before he became a journeyman, they gave him a test. You want to be in the guild. Well, he's asking, he's checking now. Would Severian have preferred to be in the guild or, uh, or is he really anxious to leave? That makes a lot of sense, actually. Yeah. Everything Severian owns fits in the sabretash hanging from his belt. A oh, Severian and his sabretash, his little bag of holding. A sabretash is like a leather saddlebag or a man purse. I don't know why I still picture this as like he's getting his hobo sack together. <laughs> I know it's not, but that's what I picture. <laughs> Severian looks in Thecla's cell. The floor has been scrubbed, but it's still stained from the blood. He says, quote, a wide, dark spot of blood rust had etched the metal, the metal, the metal floors. The only thing left in there were the four books that he had brought to her the year before when she came. Remember that he went to Alton's library just after Rosha and Drota had been elevated. He takes one book. There were so many in the library that they would never miss a single volume. Well, you know, this is how things disappear from the library. (laughs) So which one, Goldilocks? Quote, <laughs> the book of heraldry was the most beautiful, but it was too large by far to carry about the country. The book of theology was the smallest of all, but the brown book was hardly larger. 
In the end, it was that I took, with its tales from vanished worlds. He never even considers the Book of the New Sun. Think of all the useful information he'd have got from that. Just that phrase that the Brown Book is tales from vanished worlds, that caught me this time, mm-hmm. just because instead of talking about it, that is certainly a, a pretty way to talk about the past, that the past is from vanished worlds. But we also know that worlds are literal in this mm-hmm. world. <laughs> and it, I was just wondering how far to push that choice of words there. Um, oh, the other question I had, how quickly does blood rust etch metal? <laughs> well, I just guess it would depend on the type of metal. I don't know. Yeah, because um, yeah, it seemed like it was only on the floor really quickly. And so yeah. I was... Oh, maybe exultants have very acidic blood. I don't know. Yeah, I don't know. That, that was just a small fact thing. And I honestly... I, haven't been able to test it myself and yeah. probably couldn't, <laughs> but, um, but I didn't know, like, was that, it just seemed such an odd thing that, well, that maybe it it's, I mean, show. maybe I it's not, I don't, I, I find don't. it hard to believe that blood doesn't etch metal. Um, he's an engineer, right? He should, he should, yeah, know it's so things. seeped into the paint of the metal. And Could I don't be. know. It was just one of those moments where I'm like, well, an engineer. That doesn't seem like a detail that, would... that doesn't seem like a right detail i don't there's no i can't find unless you know she's a xenomorph you know from the movie alien i just <laughs> don't see it having etched the metal that within a couple of days so he uh before he leaves he reviews the tower which seems risky uh given what palaman told him he climbs all the way to the top the quote gun room where the siege pieces lounged in cradles of pure force. Ah, that's a nice picture. Uh, then he goes to the very top to a room we have never explicitly mentioned as a separate room before the room of the glass roof with the, its gray screens and strangely contorted chairs. Mm. So I, I guess this is where uh, girl Louise would go and talk on the radios. Mm-hmm. And by strangely contorted, do you take those to mean like 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 nineteen sixties chairs? <laughs> oh, okay. I like, was wondering if it was like this is the cockpit, so the chairs are actually like lying facing straight up or something. Well, that would be, you know, since he doesn't mention that, I assume, yeah, I, they must have they must have been you know it must be designed for people when after they get to space to go and sit in the nose cone and and do all the command stuff. Could be definitely, but yeah, I I imagine you know modernistic chairs that are supposed to be formed for a human body to be mm-hmm. ergonomically designed. So Varian climbs a ladder from that room onto the outside, on top of the glass portal window, at the nose of the rocket ship. Blackbirds scatter. There's a fulgen black flag, a pennon, he calls it. A pennon is like those triangle-shaped flags that you see at football games. In real life, they're, you know, they're longer, and they can be swallowtailed at the end, split like two snake tongues. There's a brisk breeze. He sees the old yard. The break in the curtain wall to the necropolis is bigger than he realized on the ground. The red tower and the bear tower are on either side of the breach. The witch's tower is closest to the Madison tower. It's different. It's slender, dark, and tall. In Claw, we're going to get more details about this place. So it's also a rocket, just like the others. For a moment, 
in the wind, he can hear the witch's wild laughter to me, and I felt the old fear, though we of the tortures have always been on the most friendly terms with the witches, our sisters. Still no word about what they do. He sees an Acropolis beyond the wall and how it slopes down to the Guile River that he can just see through the buildings on his banks. He can see the Khan on the other side of the river. I had always got the idea that the Khan was on the same side of the river as the Citadel. I'll have to rewrite, read that chapter. Quote, the city is an expanse of many colored sand trodden by the master torturers of old. There's a Kayik on the Guile. A Kayik is a single-masted sailing vessel from the Eastern Mediterranean Sea. It has a sprit mainsail, a square topsail, two more sails uh, on the one mast. It's sailing south. Severian says something interesting. Quote, against my will, I followed it for a time to the delta and the swamps, and at last to the flashing sea where the great beast Abaya carried from the farthest shores of the universe in antiglacial days, wallows until the moment comes for him and his kind to devour the continents. Severian can't see the ocean, I'm quite sure. Is this just poetry or suggestion of some so far unremarked power? I don't know, but it does sound also, that sentence sounds very much like, um, in his house at Relay, dead Cthulhu waits screaming. <laughs> it does sound kind of like that. You know, he's, he's yeah. down there wallowing for the moment that he comes. Back. He says that they were carried from farther shore. Right. Of the well, maybe universe. they were the beans. Yes. Those <laughs> beans that Michael mentioned. He, just, he doesn't believe that anymore, but... Um, but it, they, it happened before the last ice age. Yes, anti-glacial. Yeah. yeah. Uh, then he stops considering the south and her, quote, ice-choked sea. He looks north to the mountains and the rising of the river. He looks north for a significant amount of time. He can't see the mountains from here, but Nessus just disappears into the horizon. And the Great Keep is to the north of the tower because it's blocking his view. He mentions, quote, the rotting jungles at the waste of the world to the north at the equator. And what's kind of funnier is he's looked two directions, right? He's looked south and north. So it's almost like there are two. Obviously, he can only go one way, but it seems like the two directions are almost like two choices. One towards mm-hmm. Abaya and then one oh, towards yeah. the House Absolute and further uh, through Thrax. I mean, really what he's kind of doing is laying out really his travel all the way through Citadel. I mean, and except right. for the part where he comes back. What he's done is looked at the two ways he could go. But I think I want to, I would want to hold on and think about, well, what is, what is Wolf signaling here by one path leads to Abaya and another path leads to the green jungles. Yeah. Um, I, yeah. That's one way we could think about what are Severian's options. Yeah, I like that. But yeah, I did think it's fun that the uh, the way he carves that out is sort of step by step through uh, mm-hmm. through the rest of the books. Sverian says that when I had thought on all those things until I was half mad, I came down to Master Palamon's study again and told him I was ready to depart. And the next chapter, Terminus Est. So... A lot of things about this one are kind of just getting Severian on, but I do like that we learn a bit more about the Masters. We learn a little bit more uh, about about Nessus and about the, or at least about the Commonwealth and the government. So it's not, it's it's a good bit of world building. 
And in addition, everything else does raise a couple questions like that part with Abaya. Um, I still want to know why is the choice here between Abaya and whatever's going north? Uh, are those actual options? Well, for that, those are the futures of the earth, right? That's I, that's the main thing, I think. Yeah, I was trying to think that's sort of how we know on the on the bigger scale. But I was wondering for Severian, does oh. he have a choice between these two things? I don't know. I don't know. I think it's better, probably better on that symbolic reading to think about just the possibilities for the earth. But at that point, Severian is kind of the stand in for earth. Yes. Going yeah. one of two ways. So that gets us up to a point where our next chapter is going to be something that is a lot of people's favorite. Definitely the thing that people will want to draw pictures of. <laughs> um, <laughs> terminus s but but if you have questions about this chapter please let us know email us if you don't want to talk on social media or find us on twitter or the facebook group which again is where most of the conversations are happening we do have a subreddit too and instagram and instagram yes where james is showing off more of his uh good fortune and (laughs) and good match marrying (laughs) someone who will buy him multiple uh editions of old (laughs) <laughs> magazines where wolf showed up so yeah quite the collection so far again james is finding all kinds of fun images of uh wolf publications there as well so next time like i said we'll have terminus est and we're going to have another guest next time since it's such a important chapter to so many people we thought it would be fun to get some different insight into it all right matthew keely longtime earth lister he's published two yes two how to read wolf articles at tour.com. Yeah. So we're trying to just get different names that you may have noticed from the earth list or from times when you go back and search it, it just seems again, like uh, a fun way to keep the conversations going. Right. All right. Well, good. Well, we'll end this now, since this is the line of division between <laughs> a couple episodes. So thank you everyone for listening and thank we'll talk you. to you next time. I was born like this. I had no choice. I was born with the gift of a golden voice And twenty-seven angels from the great beyond They tied me to this table right here in the Tower of Song So you can stick your little pins in that voodoo doll I'm very sorry, baby, doesn't look like me at all I'm standing by the window where the light is strong Ah, they don't let a woman kill you, not in the Tower of Song We don't have to specifically ask for reviews, so it's, but I was just thinking it would be nice to, we should add one in. I would love to have reviews. I would love to have the most reviews. 